Hello, and welcome to the temperature edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of the Huffington Post, who is wearing a cardigan. I am wearing a cardigan, but can we talk about your T-shirt, Felix? Because what is on that? It's a lemur. I'm wearing, I have have a lemur on my T-shirt. He does. And the lemur has black coffee? The lemur (laughs) does. There might be sugar in it. We don't know. The lemur is drinking a black coffee. Okay. Okay. All T-shirts should have a picture of a lemur (laughs) drinking a black coffee. It is a black T-shirt, which is also what Anna Shemansky is wearing. (laughs) It's not so much a T-shirt, but yes, it's it's a black top. I'm not. I'm not. She looks professional. Camisole looks very professional. Yeah, Anna Shemansky walks into Slate Money looking much more professional than anyone else Mm -hmm. every single week. (laughs) Yes, and so she reminds us that we are not just throwing this show together. Lemurs are not part of my dress code. (laughs) Um, So if you want to be professional, this is what I learned this week: don't wear T-shirts with lemurs on them. The lemur is staring at me. That's all I'm going to say. It really (laughs) looks like it's staring at me. Its eyes are following you around the room. Okay, this is the last time I wear this t-shirt. We have a good show this week. Emily Peck has basically set the agenda for this week, which is, oh my God, air conditioning. Yes. Um, We are going to talk about air conditioning and the American economy and the world economy and yeah, Emily can't decide whether this cardigan wants to be on or off. <laughs> is it cold or warm is in here? Is it cold I don't or warm? Know. It's hard to tell. I think it's warm. <laughs> I think it's warm. <laughs> it was cold earlier. You know, this is an actually surprisingly interesting and important part of productivity. productivity. Yes. yes. So we're going to As talk we about that. We are going to talk about one of the side effects of air conditioning, which is carbon emissions, and whether they can be offset and how they can be offset. Oh, those topics go so well together. They really do. Wow, Felix really put a lot of pieces of the puzzle together in real time in front of us <laughs> in a lemur t-shirt. So. <laughs> but before we do any of that, we are going to talk about Robert Smith of Vista Equity Partners, the private equity firm that you probably haven't heard of, and what he just did for one graduating class of Morehouse College, which you probably have heard of. All that coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So last week, Robert Smith, who's a rich private equity honcho, was invited to Morehouse College to give the commencement speech. And while he was there, 
on the Saturday before his speech, he was told that 60% of the students at Morehouse fail to graduate because they have too much debt and it's just too expensive. And he was greatly touched by this statistic and took it upon himself on a kind of very impromptu level without having it all worked out at all to announce to the 400-odd graduating class of Morehouse College that he was going to pay off all of their student loans, which is a a grand gesture. And Emily has opinions about it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was interesting to follow this news because at first there's this guy standing behind Smith when he announces this to the class and everyone's watched this video and his face, just like the shock and joy after Robert Smith says he's going to pay all their student loans is is palpable. And it's it's nice that he's doing it, but it really showcases sort of the failure of public policy to deal with the ballooning amount of student loan debt we have in this country. And um, it shines a light on a lot of interesting problems, including so Morehouse is historically black university and apparently black college graduates owe more money on average than white. It's about $7,400 more on average, in part because of the wealth gap that we've talked about. And yeah, so 50% of Morehouse's students are eligible for Pell Grants, which is way higher than the vast majority of universities. So they just can't afford to pay out of pocket for tuition. And Morehouse is expensive. It's like, I think it's 48000 if you're not living at home. Mm-hmm. And It all adds up. And the median black graduate of a private college has, I think it's like $38,000 or $39,000 in debt. And I think at Morehouse, it's even higher than that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is clearly not going to set you up for an easy life upon graduation. And as Jordan pointed out, if you have no student loans, you actually wind up making more money. So this is going to be great for this you know, tranche of graduates, no doubt. For this tranche, this sort of well, lucky lottery winning class. The, the lucky lottery winners, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't think that Smith was trying to argue that like, this is how we should deal with student loans. No. Like, you right. know, I mean, he was. I think he was trying to make a statement. He, it was. It was very Oprah-esque. It was very kind of. You, you get, get a, a car. You get a degree. You, you get a degree. It, it was. Some people had two hundred thousand dollars of loans paid off. It was. You know, an but, amazing um, gift to those people. One thing the New York Times, I think, pointed out in its editorial on this was that Robert Smith benefits from the carried interest tax loophole, and lobbying to close that would be perhaps a more powerful way to solve income inequality and really showcase. I don't think that he is really addressing income inequality here (laughs) at all. I mean, remember that one of the things about attacking student debt and student loans, one of the threads which runs through this whole subject when you talk about policies prescriptions is that college grads are the richest people in America. So if you do things which are great for college grads, that's great, but you are ultimately helping the rich and not the poor. Yes, exactly. And I think this is really important when we talk about the larger conversation around this, which I think obviously goes into Elizabeth Warren's plans to forgive college debt, that when you really look at the issues with debt and education, the real problems are the fact that a lot of people, like the majority of young people, cannot actually afford to go to college. And as a result, are going to have an incredibly challenging time in this economy. And if we want to deal with that problem, that makes a lot of sense. The programs that people like Warren promote really don't do a tremendous amount, I mean, because of what they're actually targeting. But- well, no, I mean, that's not true. If college is free, and I can say this as someone who grew up in a 
country where college was free, you do have a much broader range of, you know, socioeconomic people getting degrees and getting, you know, tertiary education. It, and so any plan to make college free does make it much more accessible and much more affordable. Yes, I, I agree that with that. So I'm not saying it would have no impact on low-income people, but the disproportionate impact would be on higher-income people. So you're spending a lot of money to subsidize wealthier spend, people. Well, I mean, it depends on... on what happens to costs as well? Because as we've seen, that has been an insane cost inflation. Tuition in has gone up. Higher education. 85% over the past 25 years. Well, two things. One, you, you, wild. You, you do have to look at what people actually pay, not the sticker price, because those are very different. The other thing I do think is important to think about is how a lot of the cost increase is also because the federal government has been giving out loans with no concern for people's ability to pay them back. Which is, I think, the way you have to do it. If you discriminated against the poor and said, well, you can't pay the loan back, therefore we're not going to give you loans, that would just be a non-starter. No, give them a grant then, but don't give people a debt that you know that they are not going to have the ability to pay back. That doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense. I think Jordan was on one of the other Slate podcasts talking about this, and he made a really good point, which is that the federal government already spends a lot of money subsidizing college tuition for people with loans and in other ways, grants, other things. And the idea of sort of like switching that mentality, sort of fixing it and moving towards a free college scenario isn't maybe spending more money. It's just spending money in a smarter way and might be actually really a good thing, might put pressure on costs downward, might get more low-income people and lower-middle-income people's kids to college, might be really incredible. Like, we just don't know. The current system does not make that much sense. And, and, so I agree and, with that. and it's not just about the federal government either. One of the other huge drivers of real cost increases, not sticker price increases, has been state-level disinvestment yes. in state yeah. colleges. Yes, absolutely. And so if the states just started investing this kind of same money that they used to in the state college systems, that would be a massive improvement right there. And so I think looking at what we can do going forward, I I agree with this to a certain extent. I think that investing in human capital is a very, very good thing for the government to be spending money on, as opposed to like tax cuts we don't need. But I think trying to figure out, okay, how can we do that in a way that isn't going to potentially make costs worse, I think it makes probably a bit more sense to spend a lot of money into community college, try to create more competition for private universities. I'm a little concerned about the idea of just saying like, well, everything's free. Like, I think when things are completely free, people don't value them very much. And I think that making things extremely affordable so people can graduate debt free makes a tremendous amount well, of sense. Well, can I just come in as the English person here as like, you know, where, as I say, I grew up in a place where college was free. And there's just no sense in which people did not value a college education in the UK in, you know, the 80s. Yeah, it's just I, not true. I mean, maybe this is facile, but like I live in a town where the school is free. My kids go to public school and it's excellent and people value the hell out of it. I mean, everyone pays kind of high taxes. People volunteer at the schools. It's, you know, and then when you look at public universities that are well regarded in the United States, I mean, they're not free, but they're definitely cheaper. And the good ones are very hard to get into, extremely competitive. I, I just don't see that. Yeah, I'm, not yeah. I'm reminded of the my, ar- my argument way. is not that things shouldn't be affordable. I just do 
question making it necessarily free. Now, maybe community college, I actually think there could be a decent argument about that. When you start to get up to like all public universities, I also just wonder, okay, well, are you just going to be funneling money in? I, 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 I th- but that's exactly where you want to funnel money in, right? Yeah. It's to public universities, which are educating, you know, and the future, creating the productivity growth for the country. It's the ultimate public good. Um, so if you can figure out a way that you'll do that, but then there has to be some way to make sure that this money is actually being used well and these universities are actually graduating students who have marketable skills, but then re- fine. I mean, wait, wait, hang on. I, again, when... I, don't, I don't think this is... Because this is... you're not helping people if you're saying, okay, well, I mean, yes, it's better to graduate from the university without having a tremendous amount of debt. You still need to have marketable skills. And I think that, that this is a larger question with education. I don't, that... I don't think that's true at all. I think there's an enormous amount of evidence that college degrees are wonderful for like national productivity and for personal income, even if it doesn't give you some kind of marketable skill. I graduated with a degree in history of art and philosophy. It's not a marketable skill, but it definitely put me on, you know, the road to a high earning middle class future. And I think that's true of many people. Right. I mean, I have an English degree, so I'm not saying that (laughs) when I say that I'm not arguing that like everybody needs to graduate like with simply like coding skills. But I'm saying that we do not live in the same world of when we went to university. The global economy is so much more competitive. And I think we do need to rethink education a little bit more. It's not just a matter of the money going in. It is a matter of the results because we're not in the same world where people can just spend. And I know this is not the majority of people's university experience, but people can just spend four years kind of studying things they're interested in. That's great. And that's lovely. But that's also not necessarily going to position you well in the new economy. And I completely disagree. I think that there are two, broadly two different types of education that you can get at university. One is a narrowly targeted vocational training scheme, which allows you to get in on the bottom rung as a computer engineer or a nurse or, you know, something where you need like skills which you or a lawyer, skills which you have been taught. And, you know, what Anna is referring to as marketable skills. And that will get you into a certain career. You will spend a couple of years in that career. And at that point, you are solidly ensconced in that career. You will be able to tell whether you're any good at it or not. And if you are good at it, you can get even better and make lots of money. Then on the other hand, you have less marketable skills like Anna's English degree or my philosophy degree or or anything like that, which don't particularly help you in terms of narrow qualifications for your first job, but which do help you for life in terms of when you're in your mid-50s and working in whatever like random middle-class profession you have wound up in, because statistically speaking, you probably will wind up in such a job if you have a degree, then those skills that you learned in your four years at university are still coming in handy. That's why history of art graduates, one of the reasons why history of art graduates have higher incomes than almost any other degree. What? That's also probably because they tend to come from wealthier families. Yes, and that exactly. really helps them. In the yeah. United so, States? Yes. I'm sure. Yes, I'm that, absolutely sure about that. I think, I mean, putting aside for a second the argument what people should study in college to get marketable skills, I mean, I feel like there's really no question that taking the monetary pressure off of a college education is going to lead to productivity improvements and gains for the economy as a whole. And 
potentially shuffle really qualified people into jobs that they might not have chosen if they had, you know, $100,000 of debt to pay off. Like you hear all the time examples of like, well, I would have loved to be a teacher, but I had to become a lawyer to pay off my student loans. Or I would have loved to become, you know, a public defender or a public interest lawyer, but I had to go to a big firm to pay off my loans. I mean, if you had less debt and pressure to pay off your student loans, you would make people would make all kinds of different choices. Although the, although, although Jordan's point was exactly that if you get rid of debt, people actually wind up taking higher Exactly. Jobs. I'm sorry. When people say that, like, oh, I was going to become a public defender, but then I, I'm like, no, you weren't. Like, so I, I don't buy I it. Mean, I mean, we think don't know. I mean, one of the but... interesting things about this Morehouse donation, right, a lot of economists were saying, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, this is what's known as a natural experiment. So we can, in 10 years from now, we can look at what happened to these, you know, these 396 men and see, like, what they did and compare it to, you know, the class of 2020 or 2018 and right. really have some hard data on what happened. And, and we and we can also just step back and say that what Robert Smith didn't do was help out all of the people who would have graduated this year but dropped out because it was too right. expensive. Like he didn't actually solve the problem which caused, you know, him to make this gift. I have one little tiny little nerdy thing which I'm going to be looking at which is the mechanism they use to get around like income taxes because that, you know, if you pay off someone's debt that technically counts as income. There are ways to get around it. And I know there's this wonderful guy called Craig Antico who's been paying off people's medical debt and has worked out ways of doing it through charitable organizations so that it doesn't count as income. But it's going to be interesting to me to see which mechanism they use to make sure that these graduates don't have to pay literally income tax on $200,000 of income if they get $200,000 of loans paid off. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, let's talk about carbon neutral companies, which is one of my bets noir. Every so often we'll see some PR stunt from News Corp or Virgin Atlantic or, you know, one of these big companies saying, we have been carbon neutral for five years. It's like, but you are an airline. How is it possible <laughs> for an airline to be carbon neutral? You are spewing carbon into the air. That is what you do. And then you look into it, and it turns out that they're not carbon neutral at all. They are spewing carbon into the air. But then what they do is they go off and basically buy a papal indulgence. They go up to the to the Pope and write him a check. And then he says, you are absolved of all of your carbon sins. <laughs> Except for it doesn't actually happen from the Pope. It happens from all of these weird nonprofits selling carbon offsets. And now we have a magnificent, really solidly reported and exhaustive piece in ProPublica looking into this whole business of carbon offsets and basically saying, yeah, no. An even more inconvenient truth is the, the <laughs> yeah. headline of the piece. And then, and then there's this line saying, if you look at all of the carbon offset plans that have been going for the past 15 years or however long they've been going, and you graded them, you would have to give them all an F. She, like, not one of them has worked. She focuses specifically on offsets you buy to prevent deforestation. Right. And she, like, deeply looks at what's happened in, I think, 
in Brazil and also in Cambodia, where companies and governments pay money to keep the forest intact. And then they go and do all kinds of like naughty things to release more CO2 into the air. And she found just like it didn't work. The forest also, the, the, the was the whole in a lot of cases. The whole idea of there is a forest and we need the forest to help, you know, absorb carbon dioxide. And that's great. But then, like, what happens is the Virgin Atlantic can emit a bunch of carbon into the air and some person who owns the forest can say, well, we can offset that carbon by not cutting down the forest. Seems completely bizarre to me. although I think that there is a logic to the argument that people in developing nations are rational people who are going to do what is in their economic best interest to do. And if you don't try to change those economic incentives in any way... It's very challenging to think of why someone's going to say like, well, I can make so much more money with cattle than I can with, you know, like getting rubber out of these streets. And and this is and this is why the woman who wrote this piece of ProPublica wound up running into such incredible anger from like the carbon offsets crowd, all of whom agreed that the carbon offsets were not working and all of whom then said, but you can't write this story and what we have to do is spend many, many more billions than we already have in this market because ultimately it's the best hope we have to prevent deforestation is to basically bribe people to not deforest. And I am sympathetic to that argument, except that at some point you have to just say, if something has never worked, you have to lose a certain amount of faith that it might work in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think that in general, I think if a program doesn't work saying, well, if we throw more money into it, it does not have a fantastic track record. But I will say, if you kind of look at some of the articles that she was linking to, I think the outcome of some of these programs is a little less straightforward than she makes it appear in the article. None of them have been fantastic successes. This is clear. But I do think the argument, it's very hard to isolate the effect when you have many, many, many different things happening in this environment. And that's actually her point, that, you know, if you pay people to not deforest in area A, they'll just wind up taking the money and deforesting in area B instead. I was speaking to HuffPost environmental reporter Alex Kaufman, and he was just like, doing carbon offsets instead of going 100% renewable is bullshit. Like, we're past the point, even if offsets worked, which, as this article kind of outlines pretty well, that it's hard to make them work. They don't work. Even if they did work, it's not going to be enough. Like, the UN said, you know, we have to scale back emissions by at least 45% by 2030, and we're not going to get there with offsets. It's enabling pollution. One of my favorite bits of the carbon offset verse is nothing to do with deforestation. It's landfills which capture methane and then sell it. And that is genuine carbon capture, right? It's methane which would go into the air, but doesn't because they capture it. And it's a profitable business for them, so they don't actually need to sell offsets, but if they can get offsets on top, great, all Mm -hmm. all power to them. But again, like they are getting offsets for something which they would be doing anyway. So what you lack is this whole thing, which is core to the idea of offsets, which is known as additionality. If you're not getting more carbon captured than you would if you hadn't been paying the money, then paying the money doesn't do any good. The right way to approach this is with some kind of carbon tax or some kind of cap and trade system, but like, you know, for simplicity's sake, let's just say carbon tax, where 
every single landfill gets taxed on the basis of the methane that it emits into the air. And if they put in one of these systems, then they no longer need to pay that tax. It's a savings for them and they make money that way. And that's much more effective than trying to do it through the offsets mechanism. I completely agree with you. And I think in the developed world, I think 100 percent, like we're we're not going to stop this problem with these offsets. But it does raise the question of what you do in the developing world, where what do you do to make it so that people are not cutting down forests? What are the mechanisms to to do that? I mean, like these are sovereign nations where people are going to act in their own best interest. I mean, it did seem like that was at, towards the end of the piece. There was like some quote that was like, all right, smart ass, what should we do instead? And the piece did make clear that like Brazil is definitely not doing all it can to encourage <laughs> with um, Bolsonaro no. <laughs> it, to encourage, you know, people not to cut down trees. It's doing, in fact, the opposite. It's encouraging people to cut down trees. And I feel like the policy mechanisms, I, it often comes back to the policy mechanisms, but the actually incentivizing your citizens to do the right thing for the environment, that's not in place yet. You, you have all these people quoted in the piece saying like, I have to, I can't starve, you know, I can't starve and try and tap some rubber out of this tree. Like, it's just not going to happen. So governments have to step up and like, I don't, I don't honestly know, but they have to do something else. Right. I think I think the right? answer is that you need to approach this globally. That yeah. if you if you attack it on a very local level, on the level of like individual chunks of forest, then at the margin it's almost impossible to pay someone enough money that they will be economically incentivized mm. to keep it as forest rather than turn it into a cattle farm because the cattle farm is going to generate so much more money than carbon offsets ever would. For that reason alone, carbon offsets seem to be a bit silly because they just, they're not remotely big enough to be able to right. have the effect that we're asking them to have. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that this is why climate change is just such an incredibly difficult problem because it's going to involve global solutions and it is going to then have to involve money going from the developed world to the developing world to offset this. <laughs> not, not different type of offset, but I mean like, because other countries are just simply not going to agree to this if they don't have any economic benefit. Right. It, it has to be. A In big... a perfect world, they would, but they're not going to. And also, you can't totally blame them when you still have a tremendous number of people in your country living in poverty. It's challenging to say, like, well, you know, in, in America, we put all of this carbon into the air. And so now we're going to tell you that, you know, you can't. It's, it's uh, not yeah, like and, um, a market. Uh, carbon offsets are like a market solution. But this isn't global warming is not something you're going to solve with a market. Well, solution. I mean, again, you, you can. You can, you can there global, are market solutions. Policy. There are market solutions which can be used as part of an attempt to yeah. reduce global warming, those market solutions are cap-and-trade systems, not carbon offset systems. And cap-and-trade systems, you know, can theoretically go global. And under a cap-and-trade system, you use market mechanisms, but you don't use them to preserve Amazonian rainforest. Like, preserving Amazonian rainforest is, is like a different problem with a different solution. So and I'm reminded of, I can't remember which corrupt Ecuadorian president it was. There have been so many, but there was one of them who was like, who basically shook down some well-meaning European countries and said like, listen, I'm going to destroy all of my rainforest unless you pay me a whole bunch of money. And they agreed, actually, and they paid him a whole bunch of money, and then he absconded to Panama or something, Aww. you know. And you're like, great. Boy. Wait, so can you explain a little bit more about how cap-and-trade would work? So basically the way that cap-and-trade would work is that you have a path for global carbon emissions, and you cap total global carbon emissions at that cap. Um, and that cap goes down over time. And 
if you are doing anything which involves emitting carbon, then what you need to do is buy permits to emit that much carbon. So the less carbon you emit, the fewer permits you need to buy and the less it costs you. And so that's where the trade is. And so if you have excess permits, because you've managed to save on your carbon emissions, you can sell those excess permits to someone else who wants to pollute more. And as the total global cap on carbon emissions reduces over time, the idea is that the cost of a permit goes up over time, and that gives you every economic incentive to avoid carbon. And it basically, it doesn't tell you how to avoid emitting carbon. It just gives you incentives not to. So there's a limited number of permits. Then. Exactly. But that seems idealistic to think that like some companies just won't get enough permits and then they can't produce their widgets or whatever. Well, it's not that they can't get enough. It's just that if they are emitting a certain amount of carbon in order to produce their widgets, they need to buy however many permits correspond to that level of carbon emissions. But what if there are no more permits left? Is well, that just that, no, because it's a market. That's the right. whole point. There's always a clearing yeah. price. Okay. The, you know, the price per ton of carbon emissions, it might start at $25, it might go up to 30 or 35 or 40 And then, you know, if a lot of companies are all trying to do things which involve emitting carbon, then the price just goes up and up and up until they start getting an economic incentive not to do that anymore. But there's always a clearing price. It's not like they run out. Right. Okay. <laughs> all right. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, Emily Peck, let's talk about your cardigan. <laughs> it's summer. Why are you wearing a cardigan? I will start with a quote from the New York Times. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a woman who works in an office is in want of a sweater. That is because <laughs> when it's spring and summer and you work in an office... It is really cold inside because the air conditioning is set at a very low temperature. There was a study a few years ago that explained why that is. But the study we're here to talk about is a different study of students in Berlin, which found that women are more productive in slightly warmer temperatures than men, which sort of adds fuel to the fire of this burning social media and real life uproar and outrage over how cold it is in offices. Now we have some evidence from this study that says it's too cold in the office and it is hurting productivity for women. Oh, and if we raise the temperature in offices to increase productivity of women, we're also helping solve global warming. What's not to love? So I don't, mic drop, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> well... <laughs> been some disagreement about why temperatures are set where they are because wasn't part of it actually had to do with like IT equipment as well. It wasn't simply a. I, I, I just say I think there's some disagreement. Okay, good. Um, it is true that IT equipment likes to be cold, but I'm sure we have the technology to keep IT rooms a little bit colder than the rest of the office. No, I and I agree with you. And, and, and saying this as someone who tends to always be cold, uh, yes, I, I definitely do think that this <laughs> this is an issue. And I will say, though, one thing we all know. And, OK, yes, obviously, caveat. We all know that air conditioning and all this, like, it's going to destroy the world. Global warming, we're all going to die. But putting that aside for a second. <laughs> Forget that. Air conditioning has actually done 
a tremendous amount to increase productivity around the world and to save lives. So I, just just to put that out, it, she's it, making and, a good point. And, no, and in terms of carbon emissions, this is one thing which I think people don't really appreciate, especially in colder countries, is that the carbon emissions of air conditioning are much lower than the carbon emissions of heating. And if you just think about the temperature delta, basically, the difference in internal and external temperatures. Let's say that you have an office which is 68 degrees inside and outside it's 90 degrees. So you have a 22 degree difference there. You're, you're trying to create a delta of 22 degrees. Compare that to if you have a 68 degrees inside and outside it's 20 degrees. That's like a 48 degree. It's like more than twice as much, right? And so it's just, it's very close, honestly. It's maybe a little bit more expensive to reduce the temperature by one degree than it is to increase it by one degree, but it's pretty close in terms of like carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. So the big carbon footprint is in the cold months, but in, in, the cold in cold months, countries. In the cold months, the office temperature isn't as controversial. Somehow in the cold months, they can get the heat right. But in the hot months, they cannot get the cold so right. So what, is what you're saying that the, <laughs> that the temperature of offices is warmer in cold months than it is in hot months? Oh, 100% based on just my life alone. And Anna, maybe you could chime in. But the problem also is the outfits, the clothes, which we talked about before. That is part of it, yeah. Women tend to, you know, they have spring and summer dresses. You're not wearing a lot of sleeves today. Yeah, less sleeves. And and men, usually, typically, they're still wearing, like, suits and sleeves and pants. And um, (laughs) We don't wear pants. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, no pants. So, um, So I guess if women in the summer dress like they do in the winter, maybe they would be slightly less cold, but that's... Yeah, if, Although having if, said this, yeah. all these men that have yeah. their fleece vests that they wear year-round, so just saying, they're keeping their core right. warm. I think, I think that's just in San Francisco, though. No, no, it's not. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, a lot of people were joking around that men just need to like wear fewer items of clothing or more short sleeves in the summer. But my argument is just like, make it a little warmer in the office. Yeah, It's cheaper. This, this is definitely a benefit when you work at a smaller company, because I know when I've worked at bigger companies, it's always just awful. It's just <laughs> freezing. It's like an icebox. And you have your heater on, your space People heater on. People have blankets at their desk. Oh, yeah. No, I... <laughs> Wait, yeah. Felix, personally, have personally. you found the office to be cold in the summer? My personal experience with this is that we are moving <laughs> into a world of bigger and bigger open plan offices. And the larger the number of cubic feet in the space that you're working in, the harder it is to keep that space at a consistent temperature throughout. And what I find is that increasingly what you wind up with is microclimates within the space. Um, or nanoclimates, and that people in one desk are going to be experiencing very different temperatures to people. Like if you're next to a south-facing window, it's Uh going to be a lot warmer than if you're like over in the middle somewhere. And that the temperature gradients within large open plan offices can be surprisingly large. This is true. And also, this is like totally a rich person's problem. But in, (laughs) in a lot of Manhattan offices now that have like, you know, just solid windows everywhere, those windows are horrible in the winter. They always let in drafts. Like if you have like an office where you have like this lovely like wall of window, you're freezing. Like people wearing gloves because it's so cold. But. So maybe open offices are bad also. Open offices open are so offices? bad. Like there's nothing good can yeah. come of open offices. Open offices are great for 
employers who want to save money on maximizing the number of employees per square foot, but they do not help productivity. The only thing they help is sales of headphones because everyone <laughs> like winds up wearing headphones all day as like a cheap and crappy alternative to actually having an office with walls. The only thing I will say from this, I think we actually had this argument when we had an open office plan discussion, is that in certain environments, having an open office, I think, can be helpful in a way. Because I will say in like a trading environment. Trading floors have always been the yeah, that, that's the that, Yeah, it, that's, it actually is important. I think, too, in a newsroom, I think it can be felicitous to have open office because you hear what other people are doing sometimes and you get story ideas and it's sort of like no there are there are always felicities which are (laughs) which it is possible to you know anecdotalize yes but there are also you know a felicities there are there are there are offsetting disadvantages and downsides (laughs) there are felicity offsets including the temperature apparently including not only the temperature but also just like this feeling of I don't know about you, but I find now that I'm working in like a long line of people without, I don't even have a cubicle anymore. I just, ha- I just, I'm sitting at a long desk with people all around me. Are you in a co- on the corner or are you between people? I'm between people. Wow. That's how, that's the state to which I have been, you know, my, my poor <laughs> present state. And it's genuinely difficult for me to write anything in that context. I find it super hard to get into that flow state and actually commit you know productivity Hmm. and the felicitous overhearing of conversations is exactly what makes it hard to concentrate on what you're doing yeah so i guess beyond the sexism that this study kind of turns up again and the sexism behind colder offices is sort of like a bigger question about designing offices and heating and cooling offices to get optimal productivity out of your human capital parts, right? I mean, that's not what's happening right now. We have these. I feel like I am I am at suboptimal personal productivity. <laughs> yeah. So we need we need to work on that. Maybe I could have an office. <laughs> I've never had an office, not once in my life. Really? I had one once. And I, I, I was too young to understand. It was ridiculous. I was like 27. And for some reason, I scored an office. I remember talking to Bob Cohn at The Atlantic, who was like, whose first job in journalism was as an intern at Newsweek, when the interns at Newsweek had offices. And he'd literally never oh not God. had an office. And I'm like, wow. Well, that's a different time. It's a different time. But maybe time. we go back to that. And then you could set your office temperature however you want. Yeah, which is what I do in my home office. Home offices are great. You get you get to set them at whatever temperature you want, and you get to decorate them however you like. You know, <laughs> because it's your house. <laughs> let's just let's all just telecommute. Oh, I hate working from home. So. <laughs> There's just no good solution to any of this, is there? Offices. That's the solution. <laughs> okay. Offices okay. with so thermostats. Everyone gets an office. You with get an office. A, yes. You, you get, get an office with a, with a thermostat. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper than paying off student loans. Yes. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Done. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fracturing me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's have a numbers round. Anna, do you have a number? I do. So my number is 310. This is referring to the three-month, 10-year spread. 
Oh, but okay. I'm, I'm not just saying this because it. Is three ten a number? Or is it two numbers? Well, it, it's it, there's a hyphen in the middle. <laughs> okay. Or actually, an n dash. But anyway, so. The reason I'm saying this, though, is not just because of yield curve inversion, which we've talked about. I am saying... Are, are we inverted? Th- yes, it recently, again, there. I mean, it's gone, like, it's such a small amount that... We're, it's about zero. The difference between borrowing costs at three months and borrowing costs at 10 years, if you're the U.S. government, is roughly zero. Okay. But the reason I bring this up is because <laughs> this past week I came across my favorite thing, which is... So this guy, Alan Smith, who works at the Financial Times, created a musical version of the yield curve. Ooh. It is so <laughs> cool. Where basically, so it's like each... The numbers, obviously, like higher numbers are higher notes. And so then you can actually like hear the difference in different years. <laughs> You can kind of hear like how steep it is if there are twists. It is so cool. Anyway, this is like my favorite thing I came across this week, which friend of the show, Tim Harford, has a podcast. That is what I heard it on, more or less. That's a very good podcast about statistics. Shout out. But anyway, I thought this was very cool. That's awesome. Emily, what's your number? $20. $20. What's that? Harry Tubman was supposed to be Um. on... The $20 bill, Ooh. starting 20... This is 2020, because that's yeah. the 100th anniversary, anniversary yes. of women's suffrage. Yes. And so what we need is to take that horrible slave-owning guy Andrew off Jackson. the current yes. $20 bill. And that was the him. plan from yes. the Obama administration. Jack Very... Lew was one of the few yes. things he actually did as Treasury Secretary. Yes, it was actually... I was I was reading some old stories, and like at first, the Treasury wanted to put Lady Liberty on a 10, and everyone was like, are you kidding me? Put a real woman yeah. on the money. Like, what are you doing? And they listened, and they had this all planned out. And guess what? The Trump administration just can't. They said, we can't do it until 2028. They didn't explain really why they can't do it. And I mean, the clear answer is they're a bunch of white supremacists. And I think it's just being petty. I mean, I just think there's this idea that like anything related to Obama, they're like, we're not going to do anything because Obama mean, liked it. I think it's, it's just that, so petty. I think it's worse than that. Honestly, Trump says positive things about Andrew Jackson, who, yeah, as everyone enough. knows, not only owned slaves, but like kicked Native Americans farther west the Trail of Tears. He caused is, many of them to be killed. And yeah. And so he said only really positive things about Jackson. And the only thing he ever really said about Tubman on the 20 was that that was just political correctness, which is just disgusting and the whole thing I feel like is just I guess disgusting no okay I'll agree with you now it's more than just petty (laughs) it's more than petty it is really symbolic of just like white supremacy and how little regard the administration has for women and for black people and for American history I mean, this is a, a war hero. This woman not only freed slaves, she, you know, she was a spy for the Union Army. I mean, it's just it's disgusting of this administration not to just make this one symbolic gesture that really could mean a lot. There's no women on any of our currency at all. Only men. Only white men on our currency. Clearly, Britain does much better because we have a woman on all of our currency. <laughs> yeah. We need a queen. Um, That's what we, we need. We need a queen. Uh, <laughs> my, my number is 303 which is the number of seats in the Indian parliament that was won by the BJP in the greatest exercise of democracy that the world has ever seen. The world's largest democracy, India, went to the polls. It was six weeks it took them to vote because that's how big it is. And at the end of it all, the BJP, the Hindu Nationalist Party, under the current leader, Nahendra Modi, wound up with 303 of 543. So it's a very, very comfortable majority. The second biggest party, the Congress party, you know, the party of the Gandhi the historical part, yeah. you know, family which created secular India, they got 52 seats. Mm-hmm. They didn't even, it's like one-sixth of what the BJP does. So, yeah, this is a huge swing. 
even further towards nationalism and identity politics. And yeah, it's not a great sign for where global democracy is headed. Yes. At some point, we should actually have an expert on and have like an entirely India edition. We should have an India edition. I think that that would be a great idea. That seems like a good one for this summer. We will do an India edition this summer. Send us your experts. If you have a good idea for who we should have on to explain India to us, let us know. It is slatemoney at slate.com. We have a Slate Plus segment. We're going to talk about IPO underwriters on technology companies. Many thanks to Jessamine Molly for producing and... We will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.